You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Reading from Malachi 1, 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is sick or lame. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Ryan. It's wonderful to see you. Happy Father's Day to the dads in the house. Um, Had a great time celebrating Father's Day today. Um, one, of the, one of the deep joys of my life is being a dad. One of the reasons for that is because when I became a dad, one of the things that I was able to see with new eyes was from a fatherly perspective how God, our Father, loves us. I get to see that with my, my little boys. And so I, if, if you are a parent here, I, I, I trust the Lord is working that out in you. If you're not, I just want to like say to you, like God loves us with this kind of love. It's, it's hard for me to put into words. It's hard for me to do that for us here together, but it is this remarkable like leap for joy when I, when I see my boys. God leaps for joy when he sees you. I don't know if you've thought about that. But that like the God of the universe, maker of everything, sovereign king, sings over you with gladness. That's what his word says. He sings over you with gladness. This is a, it's, 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 it's remarkable. And so Father's Day, is a, is, is, I think, is a way for us to think perhaps just a little more creatively about what God's love for us can look like. And one of, one of those aspects of his love for you is that he sings over you. So I pray that uh, he reveals that to you. 
in the, uh, in the coming times. Hey, we are in the second week of a seven-week series working through the book of Malachi, the God of the Promise. It's a wonderful book. Um, it, is a, it is a sharp book. We're going to get into that in a minute. Um, as you're reading Malachi, if you read it on your own, um, I, wa- I want you to think about how Malachi fits in the overall narrative of the Bible. Think about that. I'm not going to tell you. Maybe we'll talk about it later uh, in a different sermon. But be thinking about how does this story, how does this word fit in the overall narrative of the Scripture because it's all connected. Hey, so what are some examples in your life, actions, patterns, rhythms, that you just have to do to get them done? You just have to do to get them done. Like you're not passionate about it. Uh, It doesn't get you out of bed in the morning. These are just the things on the checklist that you have to do because they need to get done. Somebody's got to do them. One of those items for me is mowing the grass. I do not like mowing the grass. It's not my thing. I have terrible allergies. The first time this year, like in March or April, when I cut the grass, like I thought I was going to die afterward because everything was swirling around and my head was going to... Anyway, that's, that's not what this is about. I don't like cutting the grass, but somebody has to do it. Somebody has to do it. I'm not going to pay anybody to do it, probably because I'm a little cheap. So that means that I'm going to do it. I have to do it. You've got a yard, you've got to cut the grass. But there's a good day coming. There's a good day coming. As I've already said, I have three boys. <laughs> Two of them, even now, are really excited about mowing the grass. One of them, who's six, Benaiah, has started pushing the mower. Look, he's raising his hand. He started pushing the mower this summer, which, you know, under supervision, of course. I think when I was seven, my dad was like, hey, go figure it out. <laughs> go figure it out. Asa, my, my middle son, who is two, the first time I started the lawnmower this spring, he was a little apprehensive. He's like, that thing is loud. But as he kind of peeked out from behind the deck and over, you know, little things, you seeing what I'm doing, he became more and more intrigued. I could see him becoming more and more intrigued because he kept getting closer to me as I'm pushing the mower. I see him getting closer and closer. For his birthday, he got a little plastic lawnmower. And so the first time after we got, got him that little lawnmower, I'm out cutting the grass, he heard me start the mower, he came running out, and as I'm mowing the grass, he's following me with his little mower. He's jubilant. Like if you look at his face, he is thrilled to be there. Uh, he is so, it's like it's hard to, it's hard for me to, under, to describe for you how excited this little boy is following me around as we mow the yard together. So excited. Like if he hears a lawnmower start, he'll go, loud, mower. If it's the neighbors, he'll be looking around. If I start it and he's taking a nap, forget about it. He's up because the mower is loud and he has to be there to to help dad, to help me to cut the grass. Why is he so excited about that? Why? I mean, he like breathes to mow the grass. Why is he so excited about that? One of the reasons, there's, I mean, there's, a, there's many. One of the reasons is that his heart is in it. His heart's in it. And, and where his heart goes, his emotions follow. Where his heart goes, his actions follow. Where his heart goes, like you can see it all over his face. He wants to be there. Now, if you were to compare and contrast that with me, listen, my heart is not in it. It's not in it, like at all. 
I have to mow the grass because, like, that's what I do. It's part of the, part of the deal. Asa, on the other hand, his heart is in it. He is excited. He wants to be there. In fact, I think if you could, like, ask him and he could answer you, he doesn't want to do anything else besides mow the grass in this season anyway. So listen, as we look at the book of Malachi, Malachi is going to do a few things for us as we work through this text today and in the following, the following weeks. He's going to press you. He's going to push you, perhaps even uncomfortably, to look in the mirror and to ask, as it relates to the Lord, your relationship with Him, the things of God, His kingdom, is your heart in it? Is your heart in it? Malachi is going to ask us this question. And listen, it is razor sharp. Is your heart in it? Do you follow the Lord because you have affection for Him, energized by Him? Do you see Him as beautiful and, and remarkable? Like as we're singing about the faithfulness of God, what does that do in your heart? Malachi is asking us that question. Or, instead of affection, maybe, maybe like the people we're getting ready to talk about, you've fallen into a little bit of a rut. A rut. Approaching the Lord Jesus, His church, something you just kind of do. Just kind of do. Like I just kind of mow the grass because I have to. If your heart is cold toward Him, toward him if you're bored by the things of God, listen, we can be honest about that here. We have to be honest about that here. God, through Malachi, is bidding you, pleading with you to be honest about that here. So as I've been reading Malachi in preparation for our series, man, the Lord's words, they're poignant and they're applicable for us. They're razor, razor sharp for us as we sit here in 2021. So the question I want you to consider as we move through the text this morning, is my heart in it? Is my heart in it? Are your affections on the Lord? Or are you, bo- are you bored, cold toward Him? With that said, I want you to see just one point, just one point in the text this morning, and that is that God wants your heart. God wants your heart. But before we do that, Let me pray. Our Father, thank you that you are a good Father and that your word tells us that you give us good gifts. Even more than that, you you are good. You are good. Everything you do, say, think is good, is righteous, is right. Father, as we approach you tonight in your word, open our eyes, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, open our eyes that we would find wonders in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God wants your heart. If you were with us last week, then you will remember in, these, in, in Malachi, the Lord, through the prophet, is asking a series of questions to the people. Now, these questions, they're pointed They're pointed, and they do a wonderful job of revealing the heart of the people. Revealing the heart of the people, which is really, really important because often, 
often my heart, our hearts, don't want to be revealed. They want to stay where they are. Actually, in, in Jeremiah, the prophet tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. So Malachi, knowing that, uses these questions. He's working, working, working to draw out our hearts in the text. That's what he's doing. To bring them out into the light so we can see them. So we can see them for what they are. So let's look at the, um, the first verse here in our time together. Verse 6. Look with me there. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? The questions, here they come, are intended to reveal the hearts of the people. Because, because I, don't, I don't see myself with clarity. It's one of the things that sin does to us. It's like a foggy lens. I don't know if you've ever had like your glasses fog up or, or a pair of goggles fog up. It's hard to see. Sin does this to our vision of self. We need the questions to be able to see clearly. But, but notice in, in verse 6, God asks a question of the people, and then the people ask a question in response to God. But I would suggest to you that these questions from the people actually serve to reveal the hardness of their heart. It's almost like a pushback question. You know what I'm talking about, a pushback question? Like when you answer a question with a question, like when I do that, it's because I'm kind of maybe being defensive. Maybe. So these pushback questions, I would suggest to you, actually, actually show us, begin to show us, that the people in, to whom Malachi is writing perhaps disagree with the Lord. They're pushing back. Or they don't understand what he's talking about, not because they don't know, not because no one told them, not because they couldn't look at their own rich history in the Old Testament to see what God had done and how faithful he was to them. No, because their hearts were hard. They had a type of apathy in their heart toward the Lord that blocked them from seeing, understanding what he was talking about. So the questions that Malachi asks are getting to that problem. He's pointing out that the core of the trouble, the core of the issue that Israel is having in Malachi is broken relationship with God at the heart level. The heart level. Instead of affection for the Lord, there's apathy toward him. The problem is deep. It's not an issue of knowledge, like they didn't know. It was an issue that their sin, their hardness of heart had corrupted their thinking and actually blinded them to what was in front of them. This is one of the things that sin does. And you see, this is, this is where this 2,500-year-old book, now it's old, it's an old book, becomes really relevant for us. Because he's putting his finger on an issue that's not just 2,500 years old, like it stayed there. But it's been there, it was actually predated that, and since then it's, it's been with us. And, and that issue is that we have a tendency as people to set our affection on something other than the Lord. And when we do that, we go blind to the things of God. 
We go blind to who he is and, and his character, what he has done for us. And let's just, like, in our culture, friend, you are constantly bombarded by would-be gods, would-be idols, would-be suitors for your affection that are constantly trying to pull you away from the Lord, away from his kingdom, away from the things of God, constantly. And so Malachi, with the Holy Spirit, puts his finger on that. He puts his finger on that problem. The problem of affection towards something other than the Lord. You see, but when you read the Bible, you have a, there, there's, a, there's a possibility, there's a possibility anytime you read that you might, you might miss that. You might miss the fact that Malachi, though 2,500 years old, is speaking to you right now as you sit here. One of the problems that we have is reading the Bible from distance. And what I mean by that is when we read it, it's almost like we're, we read it like it's written to some other people in some other time in some other place. And all of that distance I put in my mind from the text, to me, like I just miss it. I don't understand how or why it's relevant to me because God's not talking to me. He's talking to the people in this text. But, but the issue is that the, the, the truth is that in the Scripture, God is speaking to you like I'm speaking to you. Not like in an actual audible voice, but in like, as we're sitting here having this conversation, I'm here, I'm present right here. When you read the Scripture, God is present in the text. Like he's, he's breaking down these strict rational post-enlightenment boxes that we live in because he's this supernatural being who's coming into his word and interacting with you like I'm interacting with you. That's what reading the Bible is. He's breaking down all of that nonsense and saying, hey, I'm here to talk to you. More than that, I'm here to have relationship with you. That's what the scripture is. He's showing us the way. God is present in his word. So in general, in general, when you read the scripture, understand that God is actively engaging with you. He's actively engaging with you. He's breaking down our thinking. And specifically, when we think about Malachi, where the people's primary problem is a lack of affection for the Lord, a cold and apathetic, bored heart, toward him. That message speaks volumes into this moment, into our moment, into your moment, into your life. In the middle of verse 6, you see the people's pushback question, as I've called it. They say, how have we despised your name? And then in verse 7, the Lord responds. Look with me there. God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted it, you? By saying that the Lord's table is despised. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? To rightly understand the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, 
We've got to understand why it was set up. Why was it set up? And in my view, the most clear example of this actually predates the actual sacrificial system, but it provides the context for the sacrificial system. That's in Genesis 4. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. If not, I'm going to move through it here quickly. In Genesis 4, you see the story of Cain and Abel, the two oldest sons of Adam and Eve. Cain is a farmer, grows food in the ground, crops, fruits, vegetables, you imagine. Um, Abel is a rancher, deals with livestock. In the course of time, the text says in verse chapter, in, uh, in Genesis 4, 3, it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel's and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his face fell. Notice what Moses, the author of Genesis, wants you to see about Abel's offering. Notice, look back at verse 4. What does it say about Abel's offering, perhaps that is distinct from Cain's? He says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions. Now, what is, now what is that about? Okay, remember, he's a rancher. He makes a living based on the health, the wellness, the strength of his livestock. The firstborn, their fat portions, represented the most valuable assets that Abel had. These are the most valuable things he had. So here comes an intersection between the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and faith. And faith. What in the world, think about this, I know we live in a, I don't even know what our society is now. It's not agrarian, we'll say that. In an agrarian society, what in the world would prompt a rancher, a man who makes his living tending livestock, what would make him sacrifice his most important, most valuable asset to the Lord, the firstborn? What would make him do that? The answer is faith, is trust in the Lord that Abel had, because listen, Abel trusted that the Lord would provide for him without the firstborn. He trusted that God would provide for him, for his family, without his most valuable asset, so he sacrificed it. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament is about faith. So if you contrast that with what, the Lord, what, what Moses says about Cain's offering... Cain didn't, Cain didn't bring the first fruits of his harvest. So God accepts Abel's sacrifice based on his faith. And he rejects Cain's on his lack of faith. So if you jump back to Malachi, why is God so angry at the people's sacrifice? He's angry at their sacrifices. Because they displayed this similar lack of faith to Cain. Perhaps they were trusting in other things. Money, career, family. Perhaps they were so blind by their cold hard-heartedness that they just forgot what God actually wanted from them. 
The entire idea here is that these external displays of religious activity, the sacrifices, that are disconnected to an active working out, pursuing the Lord, like, like in faith, they don't matter. Not to God. In fact, he's angry about that in the text. He's not interested in that at all. So, so we have to think critically, not, not read the Bible with distance, but right up in front of us about how the lack of faith displayed among the people to whom Malachi is writing evidence in their sacrifices. How does that translate to us? In other words, what does a lack of faith or lack of affection for the Lord look like in your life? Don't read it with distance. Read it right up close. What does it look like? couple ideas here, a couple of application ideas. Um, first, putting the Lord in and out of your pocket. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that you take him out, put him back, whenever it's convenient for you. Like you don't think about God, maybe you don't think about his kingdom, you're not really, not really thinking about him at all until until you come to church or until something happens that makes it convenient, certainly you're not thinking about him, you're not engaging with him when it might cost you something. The reality is that there is nothing in the Bible, like nothing, that suggests that you can actually have a meaningful relationship with God like that. Nothing. Actually, the Scriptures present a holistic relationship with God. It includes your heart. It includes your affections. It includes everything. Everything. Instead of picking and choosing or, or operating with Him, engaging with Him when it's kind of like convenient for you or like when you agree with Him. No. Your relationship with God, from a biblical standpoint, is an all-of-you experience. All of you. God wants all of you. Not just some of you. Not just the surface that everybody can see. All of you. Another, another point of application. What might this lack of faith or affection look like? It might look like pretending or performing. Pretending or performing. There's a great little book um, entitled The Gospel-Centered Life. In it, the authors state that we diminish the importance of the cross, of the gospel in our lives, when we pretend to be something that we're not in order to try to earn favor or perform to be something that we're not in order to try and earn favor favor. Both of these, pretending and performing, shrink the importance of the cross in your life. And if you've seen the chart, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, there's like this, this chart that looks like this. It opens wide and on the top, the top line is the holiness of God or, or our understanding of the holiness of God. The bottom line is the awareness of our sinfulness. And as those lines move away from each other, the cross in the middle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. What they're arguing for is that when we pretend and perform, instead of getting bigger, it shrinks. It becomes less important. Now, if you're thinking, I don't even know what that means, okay, let me, let me drill down a little bit. How, how does that actually happen? Like, how? How does my understanding of the cross shrink when I pretend or I perform? Well, one of the ways that happens is that I have, if I actually think, if I actually believe that I can earn God's favor by performing some external display of religious activity, maybe like the folks in Malachi, 
I've, I've, utterly, I've utterly missed how lost I am in my sin. And at the same time, utterly missed how loved and accepted I am in Christ at the same time. So that's, that's true for you. Like if you think you can, through religious activity, you can earn God's favor by pretending or by performing, you've, you've, missed, you've missed both of these points. You've missed the sinfulness of sin and you've missed the grace of God that overwhelms it in your life. In your life. See, the truth is, like, I don't have to pretend. I don't have to perform. I don't have to put God in and out of my pocket. You don't have to do that when we don't have to do that when our hearts are changed by Him. That's what we need. We need our hearts to change. We need them to grow. We need our affections to be stirred and deepened for Him. We don't do that, doesn't happen via performing or pretending. It doesn't happen taking God in and out of your pocket. So you're like, okay, great, man. How does it happen? I would love that. I would love for my affections to be deep. How? Okay. Here's an example. In Mark chapter 1, Mark is a really fast-paced story. No Christmas narrative, no genealogy. You're jumping right into the action of the kingdom of God. It's coming. It's breaking in right now. In verse 40 of Mark chapter 1, There's a story about a man who has leprosy who comes up to Jesus and says, hey, if you will, you can heal me. If you will, you can heal me. Now, this would have been an odd thing to have happened then. Lepers were intentionally cast out of the community. Why? Because they're going to die. And leprosy is super, super contagious. So they they were rounded up, and taken outside of the community. Go out there, wait to die. But this man approaches Jesus. He comes to him and he says, hey, if you can heal me, you can. And Jesus, in verse 41, if you have your Bible, if you don't, I'm going to read it. Jesus looks at the man, it says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Okay, did you catch what motivated Jesus to heal this man? Do you see what he said? He said he was moved with pity. Jesus was moved with pity and compassion for the man with leprosy. He didn't didn't recoil from him. He wasn't disgusted by him. He didn't ignore him. He didn't shame him. He didn't say, hey, go over there and like, you know, like wash your face or something. No, he didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. He, he had pity and compassion on him and healed him. What's the point? Well, no one here, as far as I know, has leprosy. Like your skin's not falling off your bones by God's grace. But everyone here has the spiritual leprosy of sin. Everyone here is a spiritual leper. The man in Mark 1 is dead apart from the work of Christ. Dead. He reached out and he healed him. All of us in the room are dead apart from the work of Christ. But like in the story, friend, Jesus saw you. 
He sees you for who you really are, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, all the sin, all of the spiritual leprosy that you have. And he's moved with compassion toward you. Like the man in Mark 1. His heart for the man in Mark 1 is the same as it is for you. One that is full of compassion. Compassion. He sees you and he moves toward you. He doesn't shame you in your sin. When you come to him, he doesn't recoil and say, oh, get away from me. No, he doesn't do any of that. He's not concerned about your leprosy getting on him. No! He has compassion on you and heals you. That's what he's done for you in the cross. That's what he does for you every single day. When we come to him in our sin, in repentance, what does he do? He moves toward us with compassion. I don't know if you've thought about Jesus having compassion for you like he had compassion for the man with leprosy, but that's what his heart is for you. For you. And so when we think about the compassion of Jesus, I don't know if you've thought about that before. You think about the compassion of Jesus. That's one of these areas where you have the, there, there, there's great power and potential for your heart to change for your affections to be stirred because you see him for who he is. And he moves with compassion toward you. Not because you deserve it, like the man in Mark 1, but because you're sick. The Lord sees us like we are his sick children. Like, like, back to, like you don't, if you're a parent here, you don't get mad at your kids when they're sick and they come to you. Might have been sick this week. I'm not mad at them. My heart is moved with compassion for them because I want to help them. I want to comfort them. I want them to get better. That is how God moves toward you in your sin. He sees your sin as sickness and infirmity. And he, his heart of a good father is moved toward you to comfort you, to heal you, to be with you. And he didn't just have this compassion for you the first time when he saved you, if you're a Christian. He has that for you all the time. His heart for the man, the leper in Mark 1, is the same as it is for you now. So this comparison, this idea, of, 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 of this, this specific detail or nuance of what Jesus is doing, of who he is, has the power to make your heart change, change, to grow, to deepen, to stir and look altogether different than the folks to whom Malachi is writing. Because our affections are stirred, we see his beauty, your faith grows. You don't have to pretend and perform. You don't have to put him in and out of your pocket because you're engaging with him in a holistic way, in a holistic way. See, the truth is, uh, you need, I need, we need God to do that in our hearts. Like, I can't do that myself. You can't do that yourself. Like, I can't do that for you. You couldn't do it for me. It's one of these things where, like, as modern people, like, we would love to have a formula. Like, hey, Lord, give me X, and I'll do Y, and then I'm going to grow. And it's just going to be this nice linear progression. That's not how any of it works. None. Zip. 
Rather, it's I see the Lord for who he is, and do I trust his promise, and can I be changed by it? Like, I'm just going to wait and trust. Are there things for me to do in my Christian life? Of course, of course. But fundamentally, how do I change? How do I grow? I need the Lord to uproot my heart and change me. So do you. That's what we need. And so we need to ask him. It's one of these things where like, I just can't do it. I can't gin that up by myself. So if you're like, yeah, man, I, I, I agree. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how to do that. How do, I, how do I actually look at the scripture? Or how do I actually make my heart um, be in a place where I can see Jesus for who he is and engage with him in this way that has the power to change my affections, has the power to stir my heart? Put yourself in the position of the man in Mark 1. Again, we don't, we don't want to read the Bible from distance. Put yourself in the story. And think about Christ's compassion for you. Chew on it. Let it steep like tea. And just sit there. And steep. And steep. Christ is compassionate for you. You see, God, friends, he wants your heart. He wants your heart. He's not interested in external displays of, relig of religious activity. He wants your heart. This idea is so important in Malachi that he keeps going. He keeps hammering after it. We, we, we could read 11, 12, 13, 14, and we see this progression. We see the progression of him going in on these things one more time that we need our hearts to change, that these external displays of religion are no good. Let me draw your attention to a couple of things in this second section. First, if you look at verse 11, it says this. From the, sun, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is an odd text verse in the middle of these other commands and, and this, this questioning that God has here in Malachi 1. What he's doing, he's giving us a vision for the kingdom. He's giving us a vision for the kingdom that one day every knee will bow, tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that God's glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is a significant theme that runs throughout the scripture. And here's, here's an example. It's running throughout the scripture. But notice, if you have your Bible, the, 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 the switch between 11 and 12. 11 and 12. Verse 12 says, But you profane it, my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And he, he goes on. This, the, 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 the switch here, the change is stark. It's startling. God is, God is addressing again the apathy, coldness, hardness of heart that we've already seen earlier in the text. And he's, listen, he's, he is relentless on this theme in Malachi. Why? Why? Well, it's because he loves you. He's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, here's how it makes sense. He knows that you can't have a meaningful relationship with him without your heart. He knows that. And like a good father who keeps his kids from running in the street, he's directing you back. 
He's bidding you, hey, come and see. He's, he's, he's calling you again, hey, come and see. Like you, you need your heart to be with me if you want this to happen. He's relentless. He's not going to fold. He's not going to back down. Why does that matter to us? It matters because we have, there's great potential, great potential for us, like the people to whom Malachi is writing, to be distracted by other things, lesser things. They can get in the way. They can actually steal our hearts away from the Lord. Like no one in the room is immune to that. No one in the room. To have your heart captured by something else. That's like, an, um, sometimes for me, like a minute by minute by minute by minute thing. Man. The force of Malachi's words in the text are intended to wake us up to that reality. To wake us up and then, not just there, not just like leave us there, but to help us in humility turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. That's, that's how the Bible works in so many of its workings. God drawing its, his people back to him. Back to him. Like, hey, remember me. Hey, turn this way. Hey, don't look over there. Over here. He's constantly bidding you, pleading with you to turn to him, to come back to him. Think about the man with leprosy in Mark 1. What is Jesus doing? He's, 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 he's inviting him toward him. So in these warnings, in this prophetic literature in Malachi, God is calling you to do the same, to turn to him. And listen, not out of fear of punishment, not like he's going to beat you up, but because in him you can actually find rest. And you can actually find uh, affection and, and a place to be at home to be loved deeply, to be a child of God. Think about it like this. In, in Psalm 145, the psalmist captures this idea this way. He says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him. The Lord preserves all who love him. So the truth is, friends, as we move through Malachi, and maybe it's already happening this morning, Malachi is going to cut you. <laughs> He's going to cut you deep. Like that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's the Lord working in your life, waking you up to particular things. But, but we've got to have the right understanding of the larger narrative to understand how God works in the life of his people. His fervent rebuke of the people's half-heartedness or apathy toward him, it's not in a vacuum. It didn't just come out of the air. It isn't arbitrary, and it isn't even punitive. It's an attempt at calling them back to him. At calling him back to him to, to grow in intimacy with the Lord, to go in deeper into relationship, to broaden affections, to strengthen faith. He's calling them back to him. 
God is constantly moving toward you in your life. In love, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Christ died for you when you were a sinner, not after. Not after you were already saved. In Luke 15, we see a picture of a father, like the father, running to the prodigal son before he asked for forgiveness. Before the father's running to him. And, and, and here in Mark, well not here, but in Mark 1, we saw the example of Jesus healing the leper, having compassion for him when he had leprosy. Not after. God doesn't wait for you to fix yourself. Stop trying. It doesn't work. He doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for you to get your act together. He's not an angry God saying, come on, when are you going to get it together? No, he's a father bidding you come to me and find rest. That's what he's doing. That's what he did in his son Christ by sending him to you. He brought you near through the blood of Jesus, that's what he's doing in Malachi. It's what he's done from the beginning of the Bible until now. He's bidding his people come to me and find rest. When you do, if, you, if you're able, if you, if you do that, you respond and you move toward the Lord. Listen, he promises in his word that he'll meet you there. Draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. And when that happens, when, when that happens, again, it's not this linear thing, but as you steep in the things of God, you'll be changed. Your affections will change. Your faith will grow. You'll see him with, with, with greater clarity and be in awe of his beauty. That, that will eventually change your heart. It will eventually change your heart in all kinds of ways. It's changing your heart right now. God wants your heart. That's the point of Malachi 1. He wants your heart. And he's, he's, he's writing to us through the prophet Malachi to wake us up, to see his, his great love for you, and, he, and he's calling you toward him. Calling you toward him. One of the huge differences, maybe the, the pivotal difference between the people to whom Malachi is writing and us is that we have the great benefit of actually seeing the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the lengths to which God was willing to go to bid you come to me. That he would lose his son so that you might come to him. Listen, as a father who's lost a son, I can tell you, I'm not giving him up for anybody. Not anybody. But that's exactly what Christ has done for you gave up his son so that you might live. So that, you, so that he might change and capture your heart. Because as we've said, that's what he wants. God wants your heart. Let's pray.